Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to read the Bible. As I mentioned before, we're continuing in our series in the book of Esther. And today we're going to be looking at Esther 3 and 4. And I'm going to read from Esther chapter 3, verse 8 to 11. It says this, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administration for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman. And do with the people as you please. Good morning, everyone. My name's Ross, if we haven't met. Uh, moment of slight panic, and I should let Sam on the tech desk know I've lost the clicker. So, try and keep up. Oh, no. <laughs> Thanks, Lockie. <laughs> There's always something, isn't there? But the mic is working at the moment, so that's good if you've been here the last few weeks. Thanks, Lockie. Ta. Uh, it, we are in Esther. It has been a good journey so far. We've got another week, uh, another few weeks in this. So how about I pray that God will speak to us through his word in the Old Testament. Let's pray. Dear Father God, just thank you for the privilege it is to meet together here before you. And Lord, as we open up your word, we do pray that you'd speak to us through your spirit, Lord. That through these words, through a story of what happened so many years ago, that you would reveal what it means for us here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is full of drama. And we saw that this week. There was a reminder of neighbours. Neighbours coming to an end after 37 years. And yes, don't be surprised. I know what Neighbours is. Neighbours was even around when I was a teenager. I remember, you know, the black and white TV set turning the knob. Uh, yes, it was around even then. But watching Neighbours, life was always full of drama. You'd sit back in your lounge room and see what was going on. And you might have heard some of the stats this week going around of what actually happened over the series, over the years of what happened. But it got me curious. If you were to live there, what would life be like for you? So, say, the street had about 30 people living in it. Uh, it's a little cul-de-sac. If you were living there for 10 years... Uh, you would have over a 100% chance of having a car accident during that time. If you lived in that street, you'd have a 50% chance of getting married. Every person. But you'd also have a 50% chance of being killed. But it's all right, because you've got a 25% chance of coming back from the dead. <laughs> or you could be really unlucky, like a lady called Dee. And no, I didn't watch this bit. Dee was unlucky enough to marry Toadie. Uh, and on that marriage day, uh, they were leaving the wedding ceremony, they had a car accident, and yes, she got killed, all in the one day. But 15 years later, she came back from the dead. It was all good. And it appears she disappeared because she was on the run from the gangsters. And that's 
pretty ordinary as well because if you lived in Ramsey Street, you had a 90% chance of being kidnapped or held for ransom. So it was a very real issue. But we watched this sort of stuff sitting on our lounge, nice and safe, knowing that it's not going to happen to me, it just happens to them as we watch the drama unfold while we sit in our safe lounge rooms. But also this week, life has been full of drama. Full of drama. We had uh, the, the uh, Manly Seagulls ask their, or told their players to wear a pride jumper. Some players choose to do it, some players choose to miss out. And it kind of goes, wow, what's this about? All of a sudden, I'm not sitting in my lounge room anymore. I'm actually invited into this real-world experience with my mates at school or my mates at work going, what do you think about this? In Parliament, there was also an uh, opening of the Parliament. There was a, a um, recognition of country speech read out by the Speaker of the House. There was also a Lord's Prayer read at the start of the opening of Parliament. Some people, like Pauline Hanson, got upset about the acknowledgement of country and other people, like Labor Senator Lyons, got upset about the Lord's Prayer. Some people get upset about some things, while others get upset about other things. What do you think about that? It's all of a sudden, this is our world. This is the world we live. It's no longer a safe place to just sit on your lounge and watch the drama unfold. This is the world we live, full of drama. So even in our own day, we're confronted with people in the lunchroom, people around us, what do you think? Even if they say, oh, you're a Christian, you must be like them, or, or are you a Christian, what do you think? We're invited in to have a position on these things. Now, I should say right off the bat, we're not going to resolve all these issues this morning. But it is very timely, or you might say if you're here last week, hearing Ben's talk, it's in God's providence, that we come into a passage that talks about this sort of drama. The things that uh, ask the questions about what shapes you, what gives you your identity, what do you base your values and your decisions on, your actions on, what makes you, you? And how does understanding who you are shape what you believe, what your values are, and therefore your actions? What makes you, you in this time? So we're going to the Old Testament book of Esther, we are part of the way through and we're seeing that in this uh, chapters 3 and 4 well particularly chapter 3 we see the world is against a guy called Mordecai. Now we need a little bit of context uh, we saw in the first couple of chapters we met a king called King Xerxes yes he is a real king of the Persian Empire at 480 BC historically that's what's going on and you can see uh, so this is uh, definitely a stone carving of king, a king of the Persian Empire, which historians believe is King Xerxes. You can see him there, with, he's got a gold scepter and what looks like a gold cup because he's known for his drinking, even in, in the Bible, but even historically, they were big drinkers. The Persian kings were known for three things, uh, I heard a historian say. Uh, they're drinking, they're womanising, and they liked writing about themselves. So there's got lots of historical accounts of what they did. But we meet King Xerxes, king of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire of that time uh, contained almost half the world's population across the Middle East uh, through into the top of Africa. So it's a big place, he's a big king. 
We also met uh, for a little while his queen, Queen Vashti. She didn't last long because he got sick of her, got rid of her, and he needed a new queen. That's where we met uh, a young Jewish orphan girl called Esther. Esther who lives in the house because she's an orphan, lives in the house of her cousin or stepdad called, or um, adopted dad called Mordecai. So we'll get to know these guys as the story goes on. But through them, Esther uh, enters a beauty competition. She wins the beauty competition. She becomes queen, King Xerxes' queen. Now this little Jewish girl, young Jewish girl, has become the queen of the Persian Empire. Now, we got to chapter 1 and chapter 2 last week and we were left hanging of what is going on in this story. All is kind of strange, but it led us to ask the question, well, what is God doing in this moment? God's not mentioned. What is God doing putting all these pieces in place? Now we hit chapter 3 and we start to understand what is going on in the empire as things unfold. And this is where we meet uh, another character, Called Haman, uh, called Haman. That's right. When Haman's mentioned, he's called Haman the Agagite. If you know the Old Testament, everybody's got their names and places where they come from. An Agagite, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but short story is he comes from a line of people who hate God and hate God's people aggressively, wants to wipe them out. They've been feuding for hundreds of years against each other. Now, as we meet Haman, Haman is made prime minister, you could say, of the empire. Haman is the king's right-hand man. He has all the power outside of the king. He's got, he is somebody and somebody important. And the king wants to honour him by saying that everybody must bow before Haman because you need to honour him and respect him. He's the top dog outside of the king. Now, here comes the problem. Haman leaves the palace one day, gets to the front gate, and there's this man at the front gate called Mordecai. So that's Esther's um, adopted dad. He's, he's a Jew. And they talk, call them Jews. One of God's people in the Old Testament, a child of God in the Old Testament. And he says, I'm not bound to Haman. He's an Agagite. We don't like them. They don't like us. I'm not bowing. Now, how do you think... Haman is going to act, to respond to this. I'm trying to cut out a whole lot of text, jumping to the highlights. Um, sorry. When Haman saw Mordecai would not kneel or pay him honour, he was enraged. How dare this man not bow to me? Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing Mordecai. So he's going to kill Mordecai for not bowing down. But he finds out he's a Jew, and instead of looking for a way to destroy Mordecai, uh, Killing Mordecai looks for a way to destroy Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom. Remember, it's almost half the population of the world in their kingdom. It's like, I'm going to wipe out all Jews. He's an Agagite. Hate God, hate God's people, wipe them all out. He's found an excuse to do it. So what does he do? He, he's got all the power in the world. He can do it. Now he goes away and casts Lot, or Pur uh, is the... the word they use because it's the Persian language for it which is like I'm going to roll the dice and let chance let the dice decide who or how this is going to play it decide the destiny of this people 
So he rolls the dice and it comes up. They've got to be killed on a particular day and it works out to be about 11 months on their calendar, 11 months away. So he's led it by chance, but the question is always, is there chance or is there God in control? So he does this, and then he comes up with a speech to go to the king, because he's got to get the king to sign off on this massive wipeout of a whole uh, group of people. So he comes up with this speech, and it's a bit of a speech that he's like, hey, they, this group, they're, they're nobodies, they're rejects, they're little, nobody cares about them. So why do we even have them here? Have a read. Uh, we had it read for us earlier. This is a bit Ben read. Haman says to the king, there is a certain people dispersed among the people's of in all the providence of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. They're, they're nobodies. They're out in the fringe. They're not popular. Their customs are different from those of all the people and they do not obey the king's laws. He says, you don't want them around. He says it's in the best interest to, to not tolerate them. It's like it's a bad look for you to have these guys around. So what are you going to do? If it pleases the king... Let a decree be issued to destroy them. Big word, destroy them, oh, actually. And I will give them a thousand talents of silver to the king's administration for the royal treasury. It's like, don't worry, they're bad news. Let's take them out. But you don't have to worry about it. I'll look after it. I'll even pay for it. This is how much Haman hates God and hates God's people. He's even willing to pay for it. That's a lot of money he's putting up there. Now, this is big. It's big news and he, to give the orders to annihilate. So they get together, the king agrees. They say, let's write out this new law that we're going to send across all the country, all the provinces. Uh, provinces. There's different language. We're going to put it in everybody's language so everybody understands, wipe out the Jews on this particular day. And it, they, they um, send dispatches out uh, from verse 13. Uh, it says, dispatches were sent out to the couriers, through the couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate the Jews. You get the impression. This is not, let's just kick them around. Destroy, kill and annihilate the Jews. Young and old, men and women. Nobody's going to miss out. They're all going to get it. On a single day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, to, and plunder their goods. Don't want a scary thing, anything left. And a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nation so that they will be ready on that day. Let's get them. Wipe them out. Haman suggests it. King goes, oh yeah, whatever. Signs off on it. Use his signet ring to put his signature on it. It's done. It's decreed. It's law. Now this is big news, isn't it? Well, it's big for some because some people are a bit like... They're in the, in the office in Parliament House thinking, well, that was a hard day's work. So some respond as the couriers go out, send the message out to everybody. The king and Haman sit down to have a drink. And you'll notice at most important points of this story, they sit down and have a drink. The king's having a drink in Haman because they're in the palace. Life is good in the palace. They've got nothing to worry about. But on the other hand, for people like Mordecai, who's a Jew, and all the other Jews, how do they respond to this? Mordecai learned that all, what all had been done and he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, like walking around with an old corn bag, getting the ashes from the fire and throw it over you. It's a look that you have when you're grieving if you've lost somebody and you're mourning. 
Everybody can see it. And they went out to the city wailing loudly and bitterly. It's a pretty sore and sorry sight, isn't it? This man dressed in rags, covered in ash, wailing, bitter, angry, because he knows this is a death sentence. He's going to die. In fact, all the Jews are going to die under this law. But it's not just him. So he goes and sits at the, at the gate. Of the, he can't go in to see his, uh, his adopted daughter, Esther. He's only allowed as far as the gate. Because who wants somebody like that hanging around the palace? So he's only allowed to sit at the gate. But it's not just him. It's in every providence to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Like the writings on the wall, this is bad. This is very bad. And they all know it feels like it's just a matter of time and they'll get wiped out. It seems pretty radical, almost an unbelievable story so far, but we only have to be reminded what happened in the 1940s in Germany in World War II when Hitler gave the order to round up all the Jews there. In fact, if you were known to uh, protect a Jew or lie about a Jew to stop them from being killed, you would be punished, you could be put in prison or you could be even killed. So it was the culture there, everybody had to dob in a Jew. And that was the situation, a real-life situation. If you're a Jew, the law was written, you're going to be taken out in one way or another. I saw a documentary recently from a man who survived World War II, and he said he was a Jew, he was a teenager in Germany at that time, and he got given a choice from his, his dad to go, hey, don't deny your identity. Don't deny who you are. You're a child of God, a Jew. And if, you, if that means you have to die for who you are, so be it. Mum says, if you want to stay alive, you need to lie. You need to lie to, to get out of this country and stay alive. So he did a runner, um, got held up at the border, uh, and he was, was asked, hey, are you a Jew? And he says, no, I'm not a Jew. So they put him in the army. So he had to fight with the Nazis then. He survived World War II, and to this day, he says, I don't know if I made the right decision about my identity. It's not who do I obey, mum and dad, but do I own it or do I lie about it? I don't know. Even as an old man, he doesn't know if he made the right decision. It's very confronting about your identity. I'm sure a Jew in that day, uh, in Mordecai's day, could, could deny it and distance themselves and try and stay safe, but not Mordecai. He's a Jew. He's a child of God. And he says, look, this is bad, but I'm not going to deny my identity. I'm a child of God even if it means going to death. But he's grieving over it. Now, it feels like the world is against him and it's bad for him and the other Jews. But for Esther in the palace, things are hard for her as well, but for very different reasons. See, Esther, uh, she's got the world at her feet. She's been made queen, she has to wear a crown, she's got these male servants called eunuchs and the female maids all looking after her. She's protected in the, in the palace, she's got her own area. She even doesn't even have to associate with the world. She doesn't, she's protected from the world, she's safe from the world. She doesn't even have to know what's going on with the dramas and stress of the everyday people because she's queen of the biggest empire of the world of that time. She's got the world at her feet. 
But then there's a different dilemma for her. We see how distant she is from the world, how safe and protected she is from the rest of the world, for what plays out. Because she, has, she actually has to uh, learn about what's been going on in the outside world. Uh, she doesn't see, uh, she doesn't hear from or see Mordecai. She has to be told about Mordecai's uh, being at the front gate by her servants. She doesn't look out the window even, it would appear. She has to be told that, hey, your adopted dad's out making a scene, he's sackcloth, ashes, he's wailing and carrying on. So what does she do? Does she go out and, and see him, attend to him? Something bad must have happened for him to be doing that. No, no, she sends out a servant like with some clothes. Mate, you're embarrassing yourself, you're embarrassing me. Here's some clothes, go and put it on. And he's like, no, I'm not going to put on these clothes. This is big. Servant comes back and says, he's not going to put on the clothes. So she says, well, surely she must realise now that something big's going on. But she goes, no, no, she sends another servant. But this one... Esther summons uh, not just any servant, it's Hattach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her. Now, you know you've made it when one of the king's own personal guards, you might say, is his job is to attend all your needs. So he goes, oh, you better go. See what's going on with, with Mordecai. So he goes down, chats to him. Mordecai goes, are you kidding? This is what we're facing. The king sent out an edict. Sounds like he's ripped off a poster that was written out in their language to, to say the Jews, Jews to be annihilated. He's pulled it out, given it to him, and he says, says to um, the eunuch, he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. You've got to do this. You can save us. Go and plead for us because we're all going to die. Esther gets this news. She was safe and protected in the palace. Now she reads the news and goes, oh man, this is bad, isn't it? This is bad for her people. Surely at this point she's going to leave the palace, go out to the gate and give Mordecai a hug. To go, hey, this is a tragedy. I'm sorry this has happened. Surely she's got some empathy and sympathy to... to for her people but what does she do she says are you kidding you don't realize what you're asking me to do do you know who i am this comes out this is what she's the message she sends back to more she's still not going to leave the palace she says all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the royal scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. I mean, some marriage, hey, she hasn't seen her husband for 30 days. But she's like, you know, if I go and try and have a conversation with him about something serious as this, I'm, I could die. I could die if this happens. Can you hear what she's saying? She's safe. She's in the palace. The world's at her feet. What's her identity? Ah, oh, I feel like I'm queen. I'm queen. Do you know who I am? I'm not going to risk my life for something like this. Mordecai has one more message for her. And it's a message that has three parts. And it's about a question of identity. 
He says to her, Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. He's giving her a reality check. A reality check. Don't think that you're going to escape because all the Jews are going to get this just because you're safe in the palace. Now, it does sound like Esther's in her own little world because all the Jews are going to get it, but we learnt in the early chapters she hasn't told anyone that she's a Jew. And while she keeps that secret, she's safe. That's what she thinks. And it sounds like she thinks the world can deal with it. I'm not going to risk my life for something like this. You can imagine the people around her going, oh, you're queen, you're beautiful, you've got a crown. What can we get for you? How can we serve you? She's very safe, just keeping her head low, giving the people what they want in the palace. She doesn't have to deal with the crowds, the stress, the tragedy, the, the news that's come out. So Mordecai's message is kind of like, is that who you are? Mordecai wants to challenge that whole idea that she is queen. That's her primary role. Mordecai gives a reality check that the Jews are all going to be annihilated. The palace is not going to protect you from that because you're a Jew and you will be included in this well. You're a child of God. That's who you are. That's your identity. And in some ways, he's setting up the question like, are you a queen that happens to be a Jew? Or are you a Jew, a child of God, who happens to be queen? Because there's a big difference how you act and how it unfolds, your decision-making, your values, how you see that. What is the main thing about your identity? What makes you you? And what is a secondary thing? Is the question. It's a reality check. At the moment, it seems like she sees herself as queen, who happens to be a child of God. So she doesn't want to risk her life. She's already said, I don't want to see the king. I could be killed. That's the reality check. She's also given a choice. The next verse. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Saying, you have an opportunity to do something here. Or you can keep your head down and and risk it. You might be safe. And Mordecai has confidence that God is bigger than all this event. God has proven time and time again he's, he's looked after his people in the way that haven't been annihilated and wiped out. God's not going to let that happen. But he is saying... Uh, Are you going to play it safe or not? Are you going to play queen who happens to be a Jew, which means keep your head down, keep quiet, do nothing, safe in the palace? Or here's the choice. Are you a Jew, a child of God, who happens to be queen, which means how's that going to shape your values and your actions? You have to do something if you're a child of God put in that position. So she's had a reality check, she's had a choice, and now there's an invitation to say there's purpose in your life. He goes, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows? You have become queen for just this moment. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? God has never been mentioned in these chapters. God is, where is God, we could ask. But Mordecai is saying, you know, 
It just so happens the king was looking for a queen. It just so happens you won the beauty contest. It just so happens that your husband has the power to change everything. Coincidence? Are they the luckiest people in the world? Or is there somebody in charge here, somebody in charge like God, who has put you in this place for just this moment? That's what he's saying. There is purpose in your life. God has put you in this position for a moment like this. This is your purpose, to stand up. Stand up for God and his people. So what is she going to do? A reality check. You've got a choice. But here's the invitation to get involved in the purpose of life that God might have put before you. It's often a dilemma that I think most of us can associate with. So I think all of us have been put in a situation at some time or another to go, you know what, people are pushing in on me, they're challenging my faith, they're challenging my beliefs, here's my moment to go, I'm just going to lay low, put my head down, deny I know anything and I'm safe. Or when we're pushed and put under pressure to go, actually, I know I need to put my hand up here and own what I believe, to own my faith in God, knowing that that's a dangerous place. I think we've all been in that position. And for Esther, it is very literal. It is a dangerous place to play it safe or to own her identity as a child of God. So what does she do? She comes back with another speech. She still doesn't leave the palace, but she comes back with another speech. Go to Mordecai and tell him, go gather all the Jews who are in, who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast for you too. You know what's happening here? If she's saying, I want all the Jews to fast for me, She's actually, you might say, coming out of the closet. They know that Queen Esther, their queen, is now a Jew. Fast for her, for God might support her. All the people in her, her quarters, her area, the queen's area, will also know that she's a Jew because she's saying, hey, I want you guys to be fasting for me and my people as well. They're all knowing that she's a Jew. She's come out. She's owning her identity as a child of God, a Jew. And, but then she goes on. Uh, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. That's a big shift here, isn't it? She's actually taking action. She's taking control. I will do this. I will, and I will go to the king and see what I can do. And you know the risk? And if I perish, I perish. Do you notice the difference there? Before she was challenged, she's going, I don't want to do that. You know who I am? I'm the queen. I don't want to go and risk my life for that. Where now she's saying, you know what? I'm a Jew. I'm a child of God who happens to be queen. Therefore, I am going to talk to him. And you know what? If I perish, I perish. It changes her values, changes her priorities, changes her actions, seeing who she is, that she truly is a child of God. And Mordecai goes away and carries out all of Esther's instructions. There's a big shift, a big change. Now, it's a great story, great story that pumps us up, motivates us. Like, are you going to be like Esther? Own your faith to go in uh, and, and own your identity as a child of God, to see her have a purpose in life, that where God, God has got her, where he wants her to be used. But what does that mean for us, for us now, in the here and now? It actually... 
we need to actually go a bit deeper because the New Testament goes a bit deeper as well. Because when we see uh, how Christians are called to live in following Jesus, there's lots of parts. I've just picked out a couple of verses from Romans 12 and it actually pulls out the same kind of uh, things. A, a reality check for us, a choice for us and a purpose for us. So it starts off by saying, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's, earth, God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is a reality check. In view of God's mercy. So we're no longer Jews who are born into the family of God, you might say. Through Jesus, the doors are open. Jesus has come into the world to welcome us, to invite us to be a part of his kingdom. In fact, how he does it, uh, Ephesians 2 talks about Jesus having a position on the throne. He is God. He's fully divine. He's perfect. But yet he didn't cling to his position on the throne. He was entitled to it. He could have stayed there. But what did he do? He took his identity. I am the son of God. And he took his purpose. His purpose was to come into the world to save a people, to die for a people, to redeem a people so they didn't have to fear death but have life through him. Jesus is the one that his purpose in life was to take on the role of a sacrifice. Sometimes you hear the term uh, that Jesus is the lamb of God or sacrificial lamb. He's going to come into our world to die the death that we deserve so we can have life. Jesus reaches out to us and says, because Jesus has died for you, you can come into my family. You are loved. You are wanted. Come on in and experience my love as God the Father welcomes us in. But it's through Jesus. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It's fully out of the grace of God and his love for us. In view of what Jesus has done, in view of what Jesus has done for us, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. doesn't mean that we need to go and sacrifice each other. But what it means is all of life, all of your life is now a follower of Jesus. Welcome into the kingdom of God. It's worshipping him in all we do. It's very easy for us to compartmentalise each part of our life. At church, I'm like this. At home, I'm like this. At work, I'm like this. And I play these different characters. But no, God says you need to own your identity. You can be, or for me, a child of God, a Christian, who is married, who is a father, who is a grandfather, who is a pastor of a church. All those things sit under, I'm a child of God. That's my primary identity. But you can't go, well, I want to be this in this world and this in this world. It all sits under my primary identity as a child of God. It all sits under it. This is the reality check. Am I someone who lives in the world who just happens to be a Christian? Or am I a Christian who lives in the world? What is your primary identity? How does that affect your actions, your values? Do they reflect God's values? Do my actions reflect God's actions? Here's a choice. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, we are shaped by the things around us and our world we live in wants us to take the shape of their values. 
they're always going to be pushing against God's values. And if we take away the big thing, if we lose God's values, it just opens it up to, to the values of the world. Everything around us is trying to erode faith in God, having him as our identity, so we can take on their interests, their values, their actions. It's also, it's also uh, the world is saying it's a safe place to align with them. Because if we keep our head down, if we just make God a part of our life, not the primary identity, you know, we stay out of trouble. The world will love us. Be transformed, he said, though, by the renewing of your mind. That's not who you are. See, you have a choice. Are you going to stay in the safe place? I just want to keep my head down. Just, I, I want God a part of my life, but not the primary thing. Are you living in the world happening to be a Christian? Or are you a Christian who lives in the world? There's your choice. Shaped by the renewing of our mind towards God or shaped to the patterns of this world. Then there's a purpose and an invitation to find our identity in Christ. When you'll be able, where you'll be able to, then you'll be able to, if we align with God, then we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. See, finding your identity in Christ, it does give you purpose for where you are. Maybe you have been put in the position that you're in right now for just a time as this. Like Esther, God has a good, pleasing and perfect will. So if I'm a husband under Christ, I want to be a husband that lives like, uh, loves my wife like Jesus loved the church, laid his life down for her to build her up. I don't want to be any husband. I'm put in this place for a specific position. If I'm a dad, I want to be a dad who, uh, who loves and disciplines and shows grace to my kids the way my father God showed me love and discipline and grace. That gives me purpose. This is different to the world. It's following God's values, if that's who I am. And we can go on to talk about how we use our money to be generous like our God, as God was generous. How to choose love and acceptance the way Jesus chose love and acceptance of others. How to use our sexuality, that's a big one the world's pushing in on us, to honour God by keeping, uh, keeping that for our husbands or wives. That doesn't matter if you're single, married, same-sex attracted, divorced. It's the same principle, that this is God's values. We can't be flippant about that like the world expects us to. Because who knows, God might have put you in the position you're in for just a time as this, to impact those around you, to encourage them in their faith, to save them. That as a church, as a church, we pray that God will reach 1% of our community, 1,000 people for Jesus. Now we have a lot of confidence that God will save people in our community. But who knows that God might have put us in this position for just a time as this. So we pray, God, please use us. We're going to work and pray that you will use us in that journey to help see people come to know Jesus. Because who knows, God might have us in a place for just a time as this. I know we're all in different circumstances. We're wrestling with all sorts of different things. But what makes you, you? Are you a person living in the world who happens to be a Christian? Or are you a Christian, a son of God, a daughter of God, a believer who happens to um, 
happens to live in the world in the situation you're in and what has God got you in that position for I know it's leaving you hanging a little bit to think that through but I encourage you to think that through let me pray dear father God just thank you for this story the courage of Esther it was such a brave thing for her to do to stand up to make the choice of owning who she is that she is a child of God and to put her life on the line for it where it would have been much easier to be safe Lord we confess to you that often we try to play it safe we try to stay on the lounge we try to let the world pass by and we try to keep quiet Lord give us the courage to, to actually see that who you are deserves to be the Lord of our life help us to worship you in all we do at work at school at home in our families Lord, let us worship you in everything that you are uh, that you give us our identity that we are your children so lord help us to have courage where we need courage help us to speak up where we need to speak and help us as a church love our community show our community who jesus is so we see, might see many many more come to know you and be part of your kingdom we pray this in jesus name amen